The moment I sat down to read Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, I knew something special was in store. I found a quiet place by myself on a comfortable chair and the copy that I had borrowed from a friend was a second-hand hardcover. And when I opened up that first page, there was something very different about the feeling of this book. There was something very different about how it began. And there are a few differences in it, but the most striking of which is the two quotes that serve as a prologue. And it's these quotes that I would like to read to you today and discuss at length. Because in these two quotes, we see the theme of our entire narrative. We see the climax. And we also see the deepest truths that this narrative has to offer us. So I shall begin by reading the quote from the Libation Bearers, which is printed in the opening pages of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Oh, the torment bred in the race, the grinding scream of death, and the stroke that hits the vein, the hemorrhage none can staunch, the grief, the curse no man can bear. But there is a cure in the house, and not outside it, no. Not from others, but from them, their bloody strife. We sing to you, dark gods beneath the earth. Now hear, you blissful powers underground. Answer the call, send help, bless the children, give them triumph now. There are two truths 
to the human condition. There are two timeless truths that are fundamental to the human condition. And these truths are found in Christianity. They're also found in Islam. They're also found in Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism. They're also found in Judaism and Confucianism. And perhaps more relevant to today's text, they're found in ancient Greek mythology. And with the benefit of the centuries and millennia that have passed since these truths were found, we can see them clearly. We can understand them very simply in a way that is very different to the people that were discovering them for themselves. Now lost to the sands of time, now gone deep into the history of human civilization. And these true truths are as thus. One, that life is suffering. And two, there is a way out of suffering. And these have many, these have an infinite array of variations and expressions to them in how they are expressed and experienced and talked about and spoken about. But all stories lead back to these two truths, that life is suffering and there is a way out. And for some people, it's not a stretch to believe these. For some people, it's a stretch to believe more one than the other. And it's the people that only understand one of these that are really in trouble and are really in a sticky human condition, we might say. Life is suffering. You've had bad things happen to you. There are things 
that you wish you hadn't have had happen. There is darkness, there is pain. Both, both personal and internal. And how in touch you are with that, well, depends on your depth, depends on your complexity. And we all have a different way of dealing with our own suffering, our own pain. And we have emotional pain, we have mental tangles, we have confusion. And we also have those just handful of particular moments in life where things really have gone totally wrong. And we spend a lot of time trying to get away from those moments, trying to avoid those memories. So much of our navigation through life is unconsciously related to those moments. And this goes even deeper, that not only do you have terrible moments, not only do you have discomforts, not only do you have things you don't like, or things that even you could just put up with, but life is suffering in the way that even your normal, what you could say, good mood is still suffering. The moment of someone asking you, how are you? And your answer is, jolly good. I'm doing pretty well. I can't complain about my lot in life. Others have it much worse than me. I'm pretty happy today. Thank you for asking. Even in that, you are suffering. Even in that, there's so much that you don't see. And the suffering is, well, it's unconsciousness. Because we're all born into unconsciousness. We're not given awareness. We're not given the full array of the human condition. We're not given every experience of the human condition. We're given our own story. We're given our own personal experiences. And in so many ways, well, they're just ours. And they're very small compared to the rest of the grandeur of the cosmos. But in that, not experiencing or the things that you don't have, that you could have, as compared to your life to the rest of existence, is the line of awareness. It's the tip of awareness. It's the growing into reality. And the first step on the path to awareness, the very moment one becomes more aware, they are confronted with suffering. 
they come into their suffering. And they see that, well, no, I'm not all right. No, things actually are very bad. And there's agitation, there are addictions, there are hang-ups, there are jealousies, there are regrets, there's grief. And all that is not even to mention the physical pain of this body that we're in. A pain in the neck, a twisted muscle, a fragile nail. It really is, in many ways, a gross thing to be entrapped in a physical body, the human body. There are so many things that can go wrong. And yet, a few steps down the path of awareness, one begins to see the suffering more clearly. One begins to understand in a way that is very different to simply experiencing it in its full. And that is a step-by-step process. We come into an encounter with our suffering. And when that's done with awareness, we can then relate to it differently. And it's at that point we're starting to get in touch with this second truth, the second fact of the human condition, that there is a way out. There is an end to darkness. There is an end to evil. And when we talk about paths or directions or processes or growing in awareness or any of these sorts of things, it can at times become disorientating because a step in one direction on one path can be a step in the wrong direction for another path. And we can ask ourselves which path to walk on, which story is mine, which story helps me, which story is my way of making sense of things. How can I square all the contradictions between different stories, different narratives, different histories? And that can lead to, well, a floating disorientation like we are in out of space. Like there's no forwards or backwards. There's no up or no down. And we're just confused. And confusion falls under the category of suffering. Even if we don't see it, even if we don't know it, might say, no, I don't feel bad, I just feel confused. Or you might say, I wouldn't feel so bad if I just wasn't so confused. If only I wasn't confused. And the world stories 
The human stories of pre-modernity and the world religions offer a solution to this. They have a way of saying, well, this disorientation within all this confusion and suffering has a solution to it because there is a way out. And they all essentially say, well, the way out is to choose a direction, create a space, which means you create up, you create down. And we say that up is always up, no matter where you are. And down is always down, no matter which way you're facing. And this means that we can say that heaven is up and hell is down. The way out is to go up to heaven. The way up is to transcend. The way up is to go towards goodness. And the way to get there, well, that's where the religions and the stories start to diverge. They start to part ways in what they say about how to get there. And there's a larger conclusion to make from this second truth, that that there is a way out. And that is that there's a final way out. This we might call the final liberation or the final salvation, which comes in the form for many religions as judgment day, the final judgment. And this is closely tied in with justice. And when we talk about life is suffering, when we talk about pain, and we talk about a way out, and we talk about how this fits in with our relations with each other and our own personal relation with reality or with God, then justice becomes a very important theme. Justice becomes the balancing of the equation. Because if we say life is suffering on one hand and there is a way out on the other, well, that implies that we're working with a dualistic approach. Good and bad. Things are balanced. Things will work out in the end. It's implied in these two truths that as bad as bad is, is as good as good is. And there we come across the personal quality of bliss. And if you have your bliss, then you have your final liberation. And the question of finality, well, that actually ties into the second quote 
which is in the book prologue for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows quite nicely. So I think at this point I'd like to read that and then we'll talk about finality and how it ties in with these two truths of pre-modernity, which is that life is suffering and there is a way out. So this is from More Fruits of Solitude by William Penn. Death is but crossing the world, as friends do the seas. They live in one another still, for they must needs be present, that love and live in that which is omnipresent. In this divine glass they see face to face, and their converse is free as well as pure. This is the comfort of friends, that though they may be said to die, yet their friendship and society are, in the best sense, ever-present, because immortal. Is death final? Is death the end? And this is also one of the central questions that the text of pre-modernity answer, well, they address. And just that they address this is the thing that they the thing that ties them all together is the thing that makes them the deeper truth that runs through them all and they all say in a roundabout way that no death is not the end death is but crossing the world And some say, well, crossing to other worlds. And we can say this idea of up and down is simply another version of this world and other world. Heaven and earth. This world and another world. Or even the cosmos, the reality that we're in. And all the solar systems and stars and galaxies and supernovas. And then God, who is outside the space-time continuum. Heaven, which is outside this reality. That's the same version still of this world and other world. Wherever you decide to draw that line. And if death isn't final... Well, then what are we to make of the situation that we're in? 
What are we to make of the suffering that we have? And what are we to make of this statement that there is a way out? These questions can lead you in any direction, in multiple directions. And that's why we have so much directionless, so much confusion, so much floating disorientation. Which is why people employ certain stories, certain maps, certain maps that are created to say, well, this is up and this is down, go in this direction. This is how you make sense of it. And there's a further split, there's a further duality, which is, can you save yourself, or can only someone else save you? Is it up to you to find your final liberation, or can it only be given by God or whoever, or someone else from another world? And so many of the stories of pre-modernity fall into only one of these. It's one of the big divisions of their differences between the stories, between East and West, or Judeo-Christian and Hindu texts, Taoists text. Because they say, only you can save yourself. Only under your own dedication, only under your own work, under your own knowledge, under your own devotion, under your own steam, your own effort, and so on. And yet on the other hand, some say, well, no, it's not up to you. It's divine grace only. You are completely helpless. There's nothing you can do. You are completely undeserving, incapable, insignificant. And it is the grandest existential gift of God that he will save you. It is the grandest grace of all eternity that you will find your bliss in heaven. Because there's no way that you could find that yourself. There's no way you could bring earth to heaven yourself under your own steam. And it is a debacle. It is a debacle. It is a conundrum, to use a more formal word than debacle and debacle. Because which is it? Which one is it? Is it my own steam, my own effort? Or is it the grace of God? And the answer is, it's both. It's both. The answer is always that it's both. Because when we transcend, we see things paradoxically. When we transcend, we see contradictions collapse. And we 
have to say, well, in what way is it both? Because we could say that, well, maybe it's a part of a journey where at first I have to try really, really hard and do lots of work and do the things that are deserving and really do it under my own esteem and really push out this idea that I have in my head that it's all up to me and I need to be a very good student, I need to be a devotee, I need to seek, I need to do my practices, I need to clean up my act and it's all under me. And maybe that's only, maybe all that is only one part of my journey and then later on I will say I will open to existence. And if you don't like the word God, or you don't like the stories of pre-modernity and you don't want to have to choose between Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on, and you can say, well, I open to infinity. I open to existence. I'm going to pray to infinity, and infinity will be my Godhead, my vision of divinity. And then I will surrender completely to infinity. And that will be how my life will go in stages. First stage, work myself. Second stage, surrender to infinity. But you can see right in that that we've created another duality. What's first and what's second? And the answer is, it's both. And then you can say, well, okay, if it's both, then, then one day I'll do my spiritual practice under the illusion or the, the, the assumption. Let's not say illusion at this stage, because the Buddhists might get too excited. <laughs> if, we, if we start talking about illusion, the Buddhists will get excited. <laughs> and then the second day, I'll open to infinity or to Buddha. And I'll just have alternative days. And then we can say, well, why is it just alternative days? Why not alternative months? Why not second by second? Because that's another duality. That's another idea that there's an equation. This is equation thinking which needs to be understood and transcended and still used correctly. And equation thinking is very much deep-seated in our human culture. There is a famous statue, which is the statue of justice, a lady of justice. And she holds up the scales of justice, and they're perfectly balanced. And you notice that she's blindfolded. She actually can't see. And I think that's a mistake. I think that really is a mistake on that statue. And it really shows that, well... That would fit into this story here as the early step on the path, which is that you're unconscious and you think everything is fine as it is, 
But then when you really start to see and you really start to look at things, then you see your suffering, you see your pain. But it's beyond that that you change your relationship with the suffering and then you come out of it. And then you can see it in a whole different light. But I get the impression that Lady Justice has only taken that first step. She's only started to see the injustice. We can ask ourselves, well, is it the more you see, the more justice there is? That you can see that there, the more that is seen, the more justice there is to be seen. Well, no. And yes, it's impossible to answer such a question without delving into a duality and then resolving that. And many people, we can ask, is there justice? And they'll say simply no. And you can tell, well, they're more on this end of life is suffering. They're more in this side of the equation, which is life is suffering. And we could ask, well, how does, ask this person, how does justice come about? How does justice happen? Is there a way out? And often they'll answer, well, no. There is no justice. And that just shows they've only got one side of these two truths. But deeper than that, someone can see that, well... The person that has the thing or is involved in whatever scenario or story which gives rise to this word injustice has already got what they deserve. They've already got what they are. And what they are is fair unto themselves. What they are is, well, that's the story of existence. What are you? And the idea of morality, of right and wrong, good and evil, at a certain point becomes a useless tool, a useless metric. It's more a matter of finding, well, what exactly are we? What exactly condition are we in? And if we really inquire into the condition of a person's that has done something of great injustice, and we really see how they are, which is unconscious to them, unknown to them because they're unaware, then we can see that they've got what they deserved already.
and both revenge and bringing someone to justice through law and order are both simply tangles that come from not understanding that. There is one more thing to be understood from these quotes that open Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And that is friendship. And friendship is a very unique phenomena of the human condition. And it fits in with all the dualities which we encounter of justice and injustice and revenge, suffering and coming out of suffering, hopelessness, finality, crossing worlds, finding other worlds, heaven and hell disorientation and finding orientation through a map or a book and there really is no other connection between humans as friendship there really is nothing like friendship And it's the hero that understands this, embraces this, and I want to say masters it, but it's not a matter of mastery. It's not a matter of control. Because we can ask ourselves, is it up to you to make friends? Is it all under your esteem that you have the friends you have? Or we can say, is it just by chance, is it just by luck that the friends you have turned out to be the friends you have and how friends are with you and your relationships are just up to a roll of the dice of existence. And of course the answer is it's both. The answer is that this is a dualistic way of looking at it, which is a very good way of looking at it, a very important way of looking at it. And friendship comes out in many ways in the story of Harry Potter. Friendship is explored in many ways as a background theme. And here it's been a theme that's brought to the forefront. It's a theme that has been pointed out to us in the very prologue of this book. Up until now, it has sort of been a given. It's sort of been a 
thing that somehow is there within the narrative and yet doesn't count as a tangible statement of what the narrative is trying to convey. And that is a very different tone to what has preceded these Harry Potter books, the first six books. And that's why we're left with a very unique feeling, a very almost solemn feeling, an existential feeling, because such deep themes are expressed in the opening, and they come from such deep literature. So we will discuss the narrative of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, and we will see how these themes come up But for now, we can just take some time to sit quietly with our eyes closed. And that's all I have to say for now. <laughs>